getting back to the premise of the evolution of marketing, I think because there has been an almost crutch approach to using data where you don't really have to get into your business, I think marketers are going to have to kind of go back to the future. And the definition of a CMO has to be somebody who understands the business from the inside out, not just gets to do the sexy stuff that most people think a CMO does. This is the Snarketing Podcast for marketers by marketers talking to marketers with just a touch of snark. Now, here are your hosts, Valerie Vespa and Matt Wurst. Welcome to another episode of the Snarketing Podcast. And because I say another doesn't mean I'm surprised that we're still here, but it is episode 11. I'm joined by Valerie Vespa, my incredible co-host hello everyone good to see you matt it's good to see you and when we say it's good to see you people may not realize that we are actually talking with each other in a visual medium but then it gets a bit awkward because no one else can see us <laughs> it's probably best <laughs> yeah i like to say i have a face for podcasts for a reason so this is going to be an incredible episode and not because of anything that you or I are going to say or do, but because we have one of the elite chief marketing officers at any brand joining us today. This is a Hall of Famer, a first ballot marketing Hall of Famer. I know. I, I am so excited about this. I feel like he is just, you know, if for those who are starting out in this business, I think this is someone that you would certainly look up to. I look up to him and I didn't just start out in this business. So, <laughs> but he spent the summer writing a book that I cannot wait to read. And I don't love marketing books, but I think he simplifies things in a way. And, and I like also the book, like I, I can't wait to share this book with like someone like my niece who's just starting out and wants to be a brand marketer. She just graduated from college last year. I think he is definitely targeting people who are new to the business with this book, which I think is terrific. So Al, tell us a little bit more about Doug Zarkin. On this episode of the Snarketing Podcast, we say hello to marketing royalty. Doug Zarkin is a true trailblazer in the world of modern marketing. With a career that began in advertising and the lifestyle marketing arm for gray advertising, Doug has honed a unique human approach to brand building. His leadership as Chief Marketing Officer for Pearl Vision at Essilor Luxottica propelled the brand to the forefront of franchise profitability and recognition. He's also the author of a new book that we can't wait to jump into. A strategic visionary who has consistently delivered growth and innovation, welcome Doug and take it away, Val and Matt. Doug, thank you so much for joining us. It is truly an honor. How are you? How was your summer? Uh, this was not the summer of Doug, that is for sure. Did get some tennis in, which was good. Kids were away, which was great. Um, but I'm actually kind of glad it's back into fall, I'm back into full gear. Lots of good stuff going yeah, on. Yeah, you've got a lot that is cooking, which we will get into. I am eager to hear what you've been up to and where you're headed next or whatever it is that you can share. 
But as we jump in here and talk, uh, you and I both come from agency backgrounds, like so many successful brand side marketers. But unlike many, you also were challenged at an early stage in your career to think differently, right? I know that you were at Gray yeah. and you moved to GWiz and this concept of mindset marketing, which I'd love to learn more about. Let's start there. Tell me about that experience, how it prepared you for the shift to where you ultimately went, and what are some of those foundational lessons that served as a springboard for your career? You know, in a land before time, otherwise known as LinkedIn, when it came to trying to figure out how you were going to build a career for yourself, it was all about friends and family recommendations and advice. And I got some great ones. Um, one in particular, one piece of advice in particular was if you want to eventually run a business, lead a brand, get on at the end of the train and work your way forward. By the time you're in the C-suite, you'll be in a position to have done most of the roles and functions. You'll understand the love language of those roles and functions. And most critically, and this is key as a leader, understand how to motivate and harness the power of those roles and functions. GWiz for me was um, a pivotal point in my career, you know, having, having spent a handful of years in the agency world, being tapped by the iconic and legendary Ed Meyer to start a, a division, co-founded division within the gray advertising portfolio, focusing on youth and entertainment and lifestyle brands, really aiming at approaching marketing from getting into the mind of consumers. It wasn't about what was on their driver's license that should determine the, the products and services and brands that they embraced. It was really about the mindset. And so I had the privilege of working with Reebok, Konami Video Games, Seagram's, W Hotel, and actually had the opportunity to write the brand architecture for the consumer products division for Warner Brothers for their Harry Potter franchise, which was a pretty epic assignment at that point in my and life. And when someone that established and obviously prominent in the space comes to you and taps you for something that really there is no playbook for, right? You're navigating where there wasn't necessarily yeah. a road. Were you someone at the time in your career who had some skepticism, some doubts, some imposter syndrome? What was going through your mind, in your mindset, as he was talking to you about this? So I was blessed at that point in my career that I was working for somebody who today I still really think of as a mentor. And she and I were part of the team that co-founded it. I was reporting to her at the time at Gray, and she was actually, you know, the leader of the team that was tapped by Ed to start it. And obviously, you know, I was a, a big part of that journey. But what I thought at the time was I didn't know what I didn't know, so I wasn't afraid. I was naive. Um, I remember actually presenting the business plan with such bravado and gravitas because I didn't know any better. You know, at that point in my life, it was always about accomplishment. It wasn't about leadership. And I think as people begin their careers in the world of marketing, you're so trained to be thinking about achievement that the skill, the muscle of leadership doesn't come until you're actually in a position where you have to lead. And being part of the founding team, co-founding GWiz, was really the first big opportunity that I had to lead a team. And again, I so blessed that I worked with somebody who gave me enough rope to climb and enough rope to just slightly choke myself out, 
without snapping my neck, um, but forever grateful for that opportunity. And it was after this experience where you obviously spent some time and got more connected to brands, the way they operate, the way they think that you moved into more brand specific work first with Avon, Victoria's Secret. Uh, yeah. Talk about yep. just kind of the diverse portfolio of experiences. That's a career right there. But it shows, you know, it shows going, that you navigated though different organizational structures with confidence and bridge that communication. I, you know, I, I would say I was I was lucky. Um, when I went to the dark side, otherwise known as the brand side, the client side, um, I joined probably one of the most intimidating and complex organizational structures on the planet, which was Avon Products, you know, the company for women. And as a young man who had done a little bit of work and cover girl, I didn't know enough about the category to actually make a difference. And so I went to the Illuminary entrepreneur CEO that she was, Andrea Jung, and I asked to become an Avon lady or an Avon representative. And she smiled and said, you're serious. I said, absolutely. Because you're asking me to evolve something, reinvent something, introduce something, bring in a new audience. And you have to take a couple steps back in order to take giant jumps forward. And so I spent my first six weeks out in the field selling lip gloss door to door, which as the father of a 15 year old girl, it's wonderful to be able to torture her with the fact that I could go to Sephora and actually hang. Um, but more importantly, what I learned was the DNA of that business. I understood things that were not apparent on Excel charts or PowerPoint decks. I got to understand the culture, the humanity of that business and what really made Avon at the time the industry iconic leader in beauty that it was. And that's not something I would have gotten had I not sort of put myself in a uncomfortable position of um, being uncomfortable out in the field doing something that I had never done before. Well, talk about professional success and learnings. It obviously also contributes to why your skin is so great and why you look so young. So those, those lessons oh, follow. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Yes, yes, absolutely. So you wrapped up an 11 year run as CMO of Pearl Vision. Congratulations. Yeah. Um, what a Thank success you. story that was. Um, so can you walk us through some of the strategies and initiatives that were most significant in, in impacting that brand revitalization? Is that what you call it? So, it brand? yeah, I, I think so. Um, I think that's a really, really appropriate way to, to, to frame it because look, Pearl was also an iconic brand that it's, that had it lost its way. And, and that's not to say that the business wasn't profitable or successful before I got there. It was, but I can sum up the situation by relaying to you verbatim, no exaggeration, the very first email I got on my very first day at work. And it was from the president of the Franchisee Advisory Council, who's sort of the equivalent of Speaker of the House. Okay. And it said, Dear Doug, welcome to Pearl Vision. I hope you suck less than the last person who had your job. A low bar. Okay. That's always good, so, though, right? You know, it, it, what it did is it, it, it sent electricity through me and found a conference room and sat on the floor and said, oh, my God, what did I just do? And what I realized was that I was given a tremendous opportunity to think differently. Um, a core of that thinking was realizing that the brand had had five different brand propositions in eight years. So it was a brand that meant everything to everybody, which meant that it meant nothing to nobody. It, it was a brand that fast forward, shameless book plug really was in the friend zone. 
um, it was buying its business through leveraging buy one, get one free BOGO had been the model operandi for 20 years. And yet this is a business that was founded by a best in class doctor with an unmatched commitment to care. So I looked at it as kind of a little bit like a property brothers job where, where the bones of the business good. Yes, but it was horribly decorated. And so I had to strip out, knock a couple walls down and really focus on reaffirming the quality of care perception that this business was built on in the seventies, eighties and nineties. I would say the most critical strategy in building this business back up as the number one quality of care brand that it now is today in optical was recognizing and articulating that the trust, the quality of care perception that patients had when they walked in the door was not driven by grand gestures. It was not fueled by things like buy one, get one free. It was not driven by fancy schmancy equipment. It was really driven by a doctor who was willing to take the time to care about the person behind the eyes. Chairside Manor is not a course that they give you in optometry school. And yet it was those small moments of care and connection, whether it was asking a patient how they're doing, explaining the process, walking them through the diagnosis, getting a sense of who they are as a human being so that when they were prescribing the right lens and, and helping transition them from the exam room to the retail floor and picking out that ideal frame, you know, that perfect pair, it factored in who they were as a human being, this notion of thinking human realizing that your target is not a series of data points, or I should say not just a series of data points. It is really thinking about the premise is that if the person in front of you was the only person that was going to do business with you that day, what kind of experience would you deliver? And those are lessons, obviously, you will take with you as you move forward and continue to move forward. I think my yep. biggest challenge, if I was to inherit that role, would be to not make vision marketing related puns in every single meeting. So I'm sure. Oh, you know, you know, let's look at it through this lens. I mean, for sure. <laughs> Eyes on the prize. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the good news is that I love a good analogy and metaphor, as you can tell by the, the title of my book. But um, you have to keep focus, but, right? But you have to keep focus. Exactly. Um, you know, you, you have to have really good peripheral vision to understand not just what's in front of you, but what's coming to the side. I mean, please, you're not going to beat me at this game. I had 11 years of, of, of Dougisms that were created from it. But it was sort of the impetus for why I wanted to really write the book, which was in trying to take the complexity of marketing and make it simple for those that aren't marketing experts and for, frankly, those that, that need to understand the why as well as the what. I started to build a muscle of being able to take and create constructs and frameworks. And what I found was that after meetings and conferences and presentations to franchisees and, you know, even, even you know, standing up in, at summit every year and kind of laying out the vision, no pun intended again, for the business for the following year or the upcoming year that people would say, you know what, I love the way you presented it. And so when I made the decision to step away from Pearl I had been approached for a few years about maybe doing a book and, you know, I am somebody who cannot spell. Um, I am a multiple assault and battery victim of autocorrect, <laughs> which by the way is my biggest fear in putting this book out is that autocorrect is going to take the crescendo of a chapter where I, I lead up to, this is why you shouldn't do it. 
and say, this is why you should do it. And so I'm going to look like an idiot. Um, but I wanted to get it down. And it, and it also leans in, not that you asked, but it leans into something that I think is really important as a leader, which is I love to mentor and teach. Um, I, I volunteer as part of Adweek's executive mentoring program. I, I do some work with the ANA and their executive education foundation. And in fact, um, by the time this airs, I will have taught for the second year in a row, a class at my daughter's high school, which is unbelievably intimidating. Much harder than um, any actual board meeting I'm sure you'll ever be in. And let me tell you, those high school kids ask the same kind of questions as the the the, the students at Harvard did when I taught what there. What was the theme of the class? Um, so the, it, it's a class that's called Incubator, and it's a, an entry-level business class that really helps to lay a baseline for how to build a business, how to start a business, the things you need to, to think about. And so I went in last year and I did it and I loved it. And I, I got some great questions, um, really great questions. And my daughter is taking the class this year. And so um, I approached the professor and I said, listen, my daughter's in your class. If, if too much of a conflict, I'm happy not to, but I've got this book out. And if you want me to come in and she's like, absolutely. So um, it should be great. Well, be great. I don't be surprised if your daughter suddenly comes down with a fever that morning, the one day you're going to be there. But I'm sure the rest of the students are going to love it. I, uh, I expect her to be hiding in the back. I, I haven't really, I, I want to dig in a little deeper on Pearl, just as far as your role as a CMO had you working, I'm clearly like very cross-divisionally with your operations leads finance leads, I'm assuming. Oh, yeah. So like, so can you speak a little bit about that? Because I know there's like a lot of the sizzle of being the CMO and setting the brand story and talking about heritage and all that stuff, which is super exciting. And I think gets a lot of the press, but kind of overhauling the brand to be the real success that it is today had, I'm sure, a lot of cross-pollination in terms of your yeah. role. Can you speak to that? Valerie, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you asked that question because... I'm a firm believer that strategy that can't be executed is nothing more than just words on paper. And I was blessed, truly blessed to have an operations team as partners that wouldn't tell me what I wanted to hear, but would tell me what I needed to hear. You know, when I updated the four walled experience, transitioning it, not just from stores into what we termed now eye care centers, which was part of the overhaul that I led, which was changing the love language of the business. My ops partners um, gave me a really good education on not just the retail math, but the profitability math of our franchise owners. My number one job at Pearl was to drive the profitability of our owners. And so in developing future state, this is what our, our, our four walls are going to look like. It was always, listen, you've got to factor in that the franchisee has to pay for it. And here is the development cost and here's the process. And let's talk about the ergonomics and the user flow. Um, it's the same thing, even with vetting new incentives, you know, being really mindful of what is the impact, not just on profitability, but profitability when you factor in the advertising and the royalty. Um, and then most importantly, riding shotgun to ensure that I built that trust one conversation at a time that I never lost sight of the fact that Pearl Vision, as any franchise brand is, is as good as your weakest location, as your weakest franchisee. And so, yes, I spent a significant amount of time with our larger franchisees, our multi-unit owners, but I didn't design strategies for them. I designed strategies for the single owner 
because if it worked for the single owner, it could be operationalized for somebody who owned five, six, or seven. And again, I got an MBA in, in franchise operations. So in that role, more holistically as a chief marketing officer, chief brand officer, from when you started, let's just look back over the last 15 years, the, the role has yep. evolved due to technology and audience awareness, sure. but where do you think it's going to go next? Like, what does the job of a CMO look like in five, 10, 15 yeah. years? Yeah, I actually think, um, I think it's going to take a couple steps backwards for the good. And here's why. In the last 15 years, you can't look at a job spec for anybody in the world of marketing without seeing the world, the phrase data driven. And the problem with that phrase is that it completely overshadows the importance of understanding that data alone doesn't make decisions for the modern day marketer. The modern day marketer uses data to inform decisions. And here's why. Because the data that you get is only as good as the questions that you ask. How do you know what questions to ask? Experience. How do you get that experience? Get the hell away from your computer and live and breathe your brand. Be an Avon lady, literally and figuratively. If you're in an e-com business, stop with the excuses. Go work in customer service. If you have a brick and mortar business, Spend a day shadowing your front line. You want to know what's working in your business and what isn't? Spend a day with somebody who's dealing with your customers head on. They will give you a PhD in what needs to get done. The most important people in any organization are your frontline associates because they're the living, breathing embodiment of your brand. And it leads to so much goodness and so much catastrophe. You know, all you have to do is read ratings and reviews. They almost always have someone's name mentioned when they do well and always have someone's name mentioned when they have a bad experience. So if you are ignorant to the point, and I use that phrase, that word purposely, if you are ignorant to the point that you have to, as the chief marketing officer, really be the chief brand evangelist, really understand pragmatically what your brand is about from an executional perspective, your strategies are just gonna be these ethereal, beautiful charts in a PowerPoint deck that don't mean anything when it comes to driving the profitability and growth of your business. So I think people rely on data-driven because it's easy and alliterative. And what I'm taking from you is that we need to move to insights informed. A, a thousand percent. I mean, look, we get so much data and the majority of it, just because it, it, it can be measured doesn't mean that it's meaningful and certainly doesn't mean that it's valuable. I mean, I feel I feel like it's like human and data driven. Like you have to be a, a human. <laughs> well, again, thank you for the shameless opportunity to plug. It's the philosophy of thinking human. It's the philosophy of focusing on the fact that if you treated every customer as if they were your only customer, how would you design your business? And there are brands out there that have scale real scale that have done that and done that extremely well. And there are brands that are highly profitable that honestly do not care about the customer experience. And they're a brand that I would say in the customer relationship zone, you know, you have brand love, which is the gold standard, hardest place to be. But you also have brands that are highly profitable that people hate. And those are usually brands where you don't have a choice. But to go there. Yeah, I mean, I've been very fascinated with this concept of, of loyalty lately. 
Um, how do you see the role of that emotional connection with customers in that context? Is that the gold standard as well? Or finding that balance between profitability and the practicality with the emotion? Yeah. yeah. The one thing that, that, that I hope comes through in the book and comes through over this is that this isn't about ethereal positions that, that we're talking about. I'm a, I'm a realist, I'm a pragmatist, but I also understand human behavior. If I had to do my, my undergrad degree over again, I wouldn't have done a BBA in marketing, I would have done psychology. Because really marketing at its core, if you strip out all of the pleasantries and sexiness, marketers at their core, the responsibility of a marketer is to motivate the consumer to do and take the action you want them to take when you want them to take it. Like that's the 150 character explanation. Getting back to the premise of the evolution of marketing, I think because there has been an almost crutch approach to using data where you don't really have to get into your business, I think marketers are going to have to kind of go back to the future. They're going to have to go out and expand and really understand their brand. And, and the definition of a CMO has to be somebody who understands the business from the inside out, not just gets to do the sexy stuff that most people think a CMO does. Congratulations on the new book. I know we touched upon it a bit, which draws really intriguing and quite accurate parallels between marketing and dating and highlighting the concept of the friend zone. So how did you get it to the idea of that, that theme? Um, um, it's a great, it's a great question. And, and it, it really came from, uh, an exercise that we were doing as we were standing up the CRM platform for Pearl. When I joined Pearl, there was not a, a CRM platform and there was always a lot of conversation about the purchase cycle, you know, in, in eye care, while you should get an exam every year, the window is realistically between 14 and 18 months. And I remember in a, in a particular year, as we were kind of ramping up the evolution of Pearl, you know, we, we would talk a lot about latent patients and the emails that we were sending to these folks where it's been six months since we've seen you, it's been a year since we've seen you, here's an aggressive offer. And I remember saying in a meeting, I'm like, God, if this was like dating, it would be, it'd sound so desperate. And it stuck with me. And I think using the construct of a relationship is appropriate because as marketers want to drive predictability in their business, you want, you, when you put a plan out that says you're going to be a plus three, you don't do that thinking you're going to be a plus one. You do that hoping you're going to be a plus four. Predictability cannot come without a relationship. And, you know, in my life personally, I just celebrated my 20th wedding anniversary. Um, there's nobody in my life who knows me better than my wife, good, bad, or indifferent. There's predictability there. There's also an incredible degree of passion and trust. And that is no different than what marketers aspire to generate with their consumers. Why? Because in today's marketplace where you have enablers like Kickstarter and Instagram and TikTok, an idea can come to execution faster than ever before. And so it's not just about, okay, I need to create strong brand love in order to thrive. It's honestly, I need to create strong brand love in order to survive. You know, the idea of the friend zone is 
really one that I think everybody understands where you think you have a, a stronger connection with somebody than you do. And you go in and you make that move and they kind of give you the visual equivalent of the Heisman trophy for, for those of you that are sports fans. And it's like, no, no, I, wait, whoa, hey, 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 yeah, hey, hey, I don't think of you that way, um, said in different languages and different expressions. But the reality is, is that that happens with brands all the time. And the way to ensure that that doesn't happen is to really focus on getting that brand into the love area through thinking human, through focusing on strengthening the brand's value equation, which again, there's an entire chapter in the book that outlines what that is as a construct. Simple things that hopefully take the complexity out of what we do and we can focus more on figuring out what we want to do because the good news in marketing and I wish somebody told me this when I was in my 20s. There is no right way or wrong way. There is just a way. And stop focusing on trying to be perfect. Focus on trying to get better and focusing on creating the path that you think is best. I and mean, you alluded to the concept and this great idea of thinking human earlier and assuming, and I think it will, the timing for this release of podcast happens to coincide with the launch of the book when people can go buy it in stores yeah. online you tell us uh, amazon.com you can go to dougzarkin.com to uh to find the link to it but uh, there's an amazon bookstore so as a i am a human being right i happen to work in sure. brand and marketing but the idea of thinking human to your to your point earlier is about realizing you're not perfect that you have to find a way through and take all these inputs in how do or how can brands better connect with humans on their level? Like, are there strategies that you talk about in the book? Are there examples yeah. that you use with other brands that maybe you I do. haven't? 100%. You know, I'll ladder it up to a single concept, which is appreciating the fact that consumers make emotional decisions before they make rational choices. When we find something that satisfies us, that delivers a positive brand value equation output again for another time for another podcast. Mm -hmm. um, we talk about it in very emotive terms, brands that try to sell themselves strictly on rational attributes, almost inherently put themselves in a comparison mode. Okay. Because you know, all right, this car gets 27 miles to the gallon. Great. This other one gets 35. Well, cross that out. Brands need to focus on creating emotional experiences. And you know, there have been so many brilliant books about the notion of what experience means that for me as a marketer, whether I'm, I have a, a drug or, you know, or, a, a, or a, a utility or you know, the next fashion trend, I want to create a strong emotional connection. The brands that have the greatest degree of longevity find a way to take rational benefits and make it an emotional element. And that's was at the core of the Pearl Vision Small Moments platform, where we recognized that we earned trust one small moment at a time from the exam room into the retail floor. It was about putting, as Brene Brown likes to call it, marbles into the trust jar. And, you know, the people in our lives that we trust, they don't always do right by us, but they accumulate marbles and you have this jar of them. Picture that visual. 
And when a friend of yours disappoints, maybe you take two or three out, but you don't dump the entire thing down the, the trash. And that's really how it works with brands and consumers. Brands let consumers down all the time. Consumers let brands down all the time. It's not about perfection. But when you're looking to make a um, emotional decision as to where to go, you look at that trust jar and you're, you're like, well, you know what? This other thing is interesting, but this is the people that I know are going to be there for me all the time. So you speak about the, or you write about the art of sacrifice uh, in your book. Can yeah. you, can you define what that means to you? And, and sure. I, I got a, I got a great analogy for you. Um, so we've all been to a buffet, you know, some of us have been to a, a great Vegas buffet, the Bellagio <laughs> buffet comes to mind where you walk in and it's like, holy shit, you've got prime rib and lobster and crab claws and pizza and pasta. There is not a single person on the planet who comes out of eating at a buffet feeling good. <laughs> okay. And that is the same thing when it comes to, to marketing. Marketing is about positioning. Positioning is about the art of sacrifice. When you go to the buffet, even if you want to taste a lot of things, your body rejects it. And that also happens with brands. So in developing the path for Pearl, we focused on something that we called genuine eye care. We didn't talk about the Ray-Bans that we sold because one out of every two sunglasses in the world sold is a Ray-Ban. We focused on eye care, eye care first. That's where we could win. That allowed us to eventually migrate you onto the retail floor where we sold you your perfect pair. The book is a, a metaphor or an allegory in many ways that connects relationships with business. I am curious and feel free to answer this however you want, but what does your wife actually say about the book? Is her review published on the back? No. Um, well, the fact that I'm married 20 years in a culture where, what is it? One out of every two people is, is, uh, divorced. is divorced. Yeah. Um, my wife understands that I am perfectly imperfect as a human being, which I think I would say about myself as a marketer. I am perfectly imperfect. I'm pretty good at what I do. Um, I have really good days and there are days where frankly, I'm a terrible leader and, and I learn from those experiences. I have stopped in my personal life and in my business life, trying to be perfect. I'm somebody who celebrates progress. I've tried to raise my kids that way. I have two children, a 15 year old and a 13 year old marketing is a joke compared to trying to speak 15 year old teenage daughter. I mean, the person who cracks that code and puts a book out about that. The center of that Venn diagram is TikTok, and that's probably it. No, 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 because you're not, as a dad, no, don't go, don't look. Um, but I think if, and she hasn't read the book because she's an attorney and she's a hell of a lot smarter than I am. And it's, it's not a topic that I think she would relate to, but in discussing some of the analogies with her and, and kind of bouncing ideas off her, what she has always said to me is you make it pretty easy to understand complex concepts. And you have an opinion. And I think, look, as a leader, what I always say to people that work with me is please come to the table with an opinion or I will give you one. I expect this book to be an opinion, but I don't expect you to necessarily always agree with my opinion. I, I, I provided a stimulus for you to come up with your way. And I talk a lot about that, that it's not about my way. It's not about the right way or the wrong way. It's about your way. These are inputs that will help you as a leader figure out your path. The, the course you want to take to the top. People 
only used to be able to meet and date in real life. Now there's online dating. There are more apps than I can name. I'm not on any of them, I promise. But with marketing, a first date can happen in a number of ways too. But in real life, there's really, I feel like there are more, even for us as agency and brand folks, there are more conferences and networking events than ever before. And while they're important yeah. for leaders and innovators to connect in this B2B dating world, we may be approaching oversaturation. I'm exhausted just looking at my fall calendar. For you as a marketer, do you still like to meet, connect, date in real life? In a business context, let's put that. Yes, in, in, in that of course. Of course. Released. Um, <laughs> a thousand percent, because I know what I don't know. You know, nobody can be a master of everything. And so for me, I try to stay active. I try to, to, to do the conference circuit, try to be involved in, you know, a, a curated roster of organizations, because if somebody talks to me for 20 minutes and I get one piece of information that allows me to be better at what I do, it's awesome. It's like playing tennis with somebody who may not be better than you, but has a shot in their arsenal. You're like, Ooh, I never thought about or a that. different style than you're used to rallying with Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So writing a book is quite the accomplishment and you've obviously had a great career. <laughs> Unless it sucks, <laughs> then it's quite the waste of time. Um, but yeah. Has, has this book writing given you a fresh perspective on, you know, your trajectory and where you, you want to go in terms of career, your role, your next move? I want to make a difference, not just as a leader, but as a person. And I try to do that as I mentioned earlier, through mentoring and teaching, I want to be involved in shaping the narrative of brand culture and marketing culture. And, you know, look, not everybody works for a brand like Pepsi, you know, or MasterCard, but that doesn't mean that the best ideas only come from people like that. So, you know, it's sort of like saying that the thought leaders of tomorrow only come from the Ivy Leagues. It's ridiculous. Some of the most intelligent professors and students I've ever had the privilege of, of teaching are at community colleges. Because there's reasons why people make those kind of decisions. So, you know, I, I've been blessed that I've worked for some iconic brands. Um, you know, my next role, I hope, will be an opportunity to make a difference. It may not be at an iconic brand, but I can still try to do iconic work. Before we jump to our lightning round, I'm going to put you on the spot and ask for your hall of fame brilliance to take a brand that may not be as well-known or well-loved unprepared real life case project that we're going to work on right now. Let's say there is a great product that just launched. They have very limited budget to spread the word. The team is talented, but they need to get the word out about their product. They know their audience. They know that they can create value, but awareness and consideration happens to be low. Where do you start? And yes, we're talking about this podcast. I think you have to, what is your niche? You have to identify your niche. Okay. And niche doesn't mean small. It means way in. So who at the end of the day is the person that should be listening to it? Like for my book, my niche is really focusing on people that are young in their career associate brand manager, brand manager, account executive, account director on the agency side, MBA student, undergrad, finishing up. That's, that's my niche. 
And I think for you, what's going to be critical in building this brand is really optimizing your penetration with that niche. Don't spray and pray, go narrow and deep, you know, focus on bringing in a roster of talent on your channel that reflects interesting insights for that particular audience, you know, and that doesn't necessarily mean you may not get, you know, the, the top 50 CMOs. So you go to the next, well, we got 50. one, so we're doing something right. We got, you got, you got, you got somebody in the top, we'll call it, uh, you know, maybe top 200, um, maybe. Um, for, for guys that last names start with Z. So I'll give that, I for sure top 200 for guys whose last name starts with Z that I'm confident you're, you're in a world okay. where alphabetical discrimination resonates. So you're among your people here. Listen, listen, I, I, I will say with confidence that, that I am in the top 200 of guys of men who are marketers with the last name Z. I feel pretty good about making that declaration. Um, I think for I think for you it's it's trying to find brands and experiences and then look and if you can't get the number one guy or gal get the number two guy or gal you know it, it's about the insight that they give not necessarily the title that they have I would hope that what I have to say is meaningful regardless of what brand I'm working for and you know I've learned some really interesting lessons um, since leaving Pearl about um, where that stands in the role in the world of the marketing ecosystem. Um, it's amazing what happens when you have money to spend, who comes out of the woodwork and is your bestie. <laughs> it's also very interesting to know who kind of turtles and doesn't have time. You can't hold a grudge, but you can keep a list. And, uh, I have my list. <laughs> so it's all good. You can feel lonely <laughs> up there. <laughs> In writing, you know, writing for me was very cathartic because at those times where, you know, I was not in the best of headspace in terms of, okay, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I was putting my energy into trying to do something that was going to make a difference. So I had, I always had a plan in mind and that's why this summer was the perfect summer for me to do it. Well, then really it was the summer of Doug and we're all going to be the beneficiaries of it though, right? We're all going to glean certain nuggets of wisdom that go far beyond what you were able to share in this time. But thank you for that, Valerie, I hope you were taking notes for our media and marketing plan. Uh, I literally what... did just take a note. That's why I took my phone out because I took a note. Okay, good. Um, okay. Yeah. So, Doug, thank you for that. So with that wisdom and expertise that you've shared, we are going to close our time with you here with our, uh, I wouldn't say world famous, but with our audience, you never know. But this is our lightning round. We call it Gone in 60 Seconds, Six Questions. You don't need to limit it to 60 seconds because at the end of the day, we value your time, but also your wisdom. So first question, you've written a book that brings dating and marketing together. Do you believe in love at first sight? Yes, but not everlasting love at first sight. Your favorite marketing book or resource that you have read? Dr. Seuss, all the places that you'll go. Doctor, if you read Dr. Seuss as an adult, the brilliance in that book is that it transcends more than just life. It transcends business. And, and I, I have a, a very special copy given to me by somebody very special in my life that I look at every once in a while and it inspires me and it actually solves a lot of problems. The, com the complexity is in the simplicity. What is one word to describe your leadership style? passionate 
I think of Pearl and hear the jingle in my head and probably will forever. Mm -hmm. I'm a child of the 80s, so TV jingles were my thing. Mm -hmm. What is your all-time favorite advertising jingle? God, yeah, it's not an advertising jingle, but I have to say, like the Bud, the Budweiser Frogs is probably one of the best. Budweiser yeah. from the yeah. early two thousands. Yeah. Bud, that's incredible. Bud. And then the and then the What's Up Guys, you know, oh. it's another 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 piece of, of of jingle Jesus. What a what a great question though. What a great question. Favorite social media platform for personal use. Facebook, because as my daughter likes to say, that's where people your age should be hanging out. <laughs> it's all good. She's gonna she's gonna want a car and she's gonna want to go to college. It's all good. I got plenty plenty so of leverage. Got that list. Remember, you're keeping a list. I've got the list. I've got the list. And last question: What is your most memorable aha moment in your career? Um, I think the first time. I was on stage in front of a couple hundred people and realized that this is a happy place for me, that this is where I do some of my best work. And whether it's the performance side of me, whether that's because you know deep down inside, I probably wanted to be an actor as opposed to being a marketer. Uh, the first time I got on stage, um, it was in New Orleans and it was at a um, television and video conference and I'm blanking on the name and there were probably four or 500 people in the audience and I went up on stage and something just clicked and I realized that I, this is, this is, this is where I should be. What marketer doesn't want to have a microphone in front of his face, but <laughs> I, I love it. Well, you have certainly found your place and thank you for making your place for at least the last 30 or 40 minutes here with us. The book, Moving Your Brand Out of the Friend Zone is available now. I cannot wait to own a copy. I'm going to have to find you at a conference very shortly to have you autograph it for me. Um, but Doug, thank you so much for this. This was, this was incredible. You. Matt, Valerie, I appreciate the support. If, if you if you buy the book and you read the book and you find any typos, do me a favor. Don't don't tell me because it's it's my biggest fear in life coming true. Um, and for those of you that are listening to it, you know, take a read of it. Hopefully, you get inspired by something, maybe everything, but hopefully something. Thanks for listening to another conversation on the Snarketing Podcast, and thanks to Doug for joining us. Can't wait to read the book, though as an AI program, it will take me under 6 milliseconds to finish it. As for everyone else, see you next time.